Hey everybody, welcome to episode 296 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from a chilly day in Austin, Texas. The weather has finally turned here, and I'm excited about this episode because we're going to be talking about something that is absolutely critical to your fitness building, which is recovery, which is recovery. And I would submit in this episode, we're going to talk about simplifying and reframing recovery a little bit so that you can get the most out of your active rest so that you can ultimately build to your best fitness. So we'll get to that in just a second. Before we get there, I wanted to quickly thank my sponsor for this episode, Athletic Greens. They've been a partner now for several months. I've also been taking it for several months, and I'll be talking a little bit about that in the middle of the episode, as well as, of course, giving you an offer code if you'd like to try it out. So we'll get to that in just a second, but I want to talk about recovery. I want to talk about the three most important elements of recovery, and I also want to talk about some other tasks and activities that you can do to engage recovery that you may not think of in the context of recovery. So I'm going to tee up the three most important recovery activities, and then I'm going to give you a list of eight practical ways that you can engage recovery beyond that. So we'll get to those lists here in just a second, but let's tee up and let's frame recovery for a second. There's a couple of notes here I wanted to lay out for context. One, of course, is the importance of recovery. You can only get as fit as your body is able to recover from the work. Stress plus rest equals fitness growth. We tear down our body essentially when we do the harder work, the long runs, the workouts. We build it back up to a stronger body during recovery. Recovery here in this context is active rest. It's not sitting on your hands doing nothing. It is actively pursuing rest so that your body can assimilate the work that you've done and build itself back up to a stronger place. So it's absolutely critical critical and if you're under recovering then you won't be able to do as much work you won't benefit from that work in the same ways and potentially you risk digging a bigger hole for yourself that might lead to things like overtraining and so you can really only do as much work as you can recover from and so it's important that you prioritize this so that's sort of point one obviously the importance of recovery you may get that already The second point here is that recovery is simpler than we typically like to make it out to be. We often focus on the fringe elements of recovery, which may be important, doing things like ice baths and cryotherapy and paying for massage. We we often talk about those things as recovery, And while they can be helpful, the science and the jury is still out on some of those things, while they can be helpful, we often ignore the most important core elements of recovery that are simple, that are free, that are right in front of us. And so I want to submit in this episode that we get back to the basics on recovery, that we might remind ourselves those fundamental things that we can do to make sure we're resting appropriately so that we can build back to a stronger version of ourselves. It's simpler than we like to make it. We got to get back 
to the basics on this, and there are three fundamental ways to do that. If you're not prioritizing these things, then it doesn't matter what else you're doing outside of it. You will be under-optimized. You'll be sub-optimizing your recovery. So we'll talk about those three things. Then we'll talk about eight other things, for the most part free or at least no extra cost that you can do to make sure you're actively recovering from the work that you're doing. So what are the three things? What are the three things? These are the basics. Simple things that aren't going to surprise you, but that are absolutely critical. And if you're not optimizing these three basic things, then you're wasting time and probably money on recovery. So what are those three things? Movement, sleep, fueling. Movement, sleep, fueling. It's as simple as those three things. If you're not working on those three things, then it doesn't matter what else you're doing. So let's break it down one by one. Movement, sleep, fueling. And then again, I'll get to a list of eight other things, ways you can engage some of these elements, but also others in order to kickstart recovery. Number one, movement. Easy movement. We're talking about active rest. Movement equals blood flow equals healing. Can't tell you how many times I have people come to me and they say, Chris, I can't run more than X days a week. If I do, I get injured. Well, if that's your issue, then that likely means that you're running too hard on your easy days. It's not that you're running too many days. Those easy days, those recovery days, those are the glue that keeps it all together and are absolutely critical. So typically running more will actually make you more injury resilient if you're doing it in the right way. But it has to be easy, easy movement. So what does that look like? It can look like three potential things. One would be an easy recovery run where the day after a workout or a long run, you go out and you move at an easy, easy effort. I typically recommend that your recovery runs, as I've talked about before on this podcast, are done at a pace that's at least two minutes per mile slower or two and a half minutes per mile slower than your marathon and half marathon pace reflect respectively. So you want to make sure it's easy, but it could be easier than that. Really, there's no limit on the pace that you run for your recovery runs. It should be dictated largely by how you're feeling. So the more sore you are, the more that's a sign you actually need that active recovery. So use that as a signal, as a cue. Some people will say, hey, I was too sore to do my recovery run. No, you're not. If you're sore, then that means you need that recovery run more than ever. And of course, you want to make sure it's done at an easy, easy effort, a pace that's two to two and a half minutes slower than marathon or half marathon pace, respectively. That isn't pushing at all. That that makes your body feel comfortable. The metric that I like to use for whether or not my recovery one run was successful is, does my body feel better after the run than it did when it started? If so, then you're probably doing it right. But it has to be easy, easy movement. One of my coaches likes to say you want your body to dictate the pace. So the more you're sluggish, the more you slow down. The more your body is revolting, the more you slow down until it gets comfortable. And if 
you need to walk run or perhaps walk at some points during the recovery run in order to feel comfortable, then you should do that. There are no style points on recovery runs. It's all about covering some distance, creating that gentle, easy movement that promotes blood flow, that promotes healing. As Marilyn has said on this show, one of our beginner coaches, she says, motion is lotion for the muscles. And that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to give the muscles the lotion that they need to recover from the work. It can also look like if that's too rigorous for you for whatever reason, or if you're building into a a routine where you have more days of movement every week, it could also look like a recovery walk, perhaps, if that's all that your body allows in order to stay healthy. So perhaps you start with those being recovery walks, or it could look like easy, low impact low intensity cross training via bike, swim, elliptical, or some other modality that's going to allow you to move in a similar way to the running without the impact, while also still getting that movement and blood flow and healing without taxing the system too much. So this isn't a spin class where you're going hard to the music. This is a very easy recovery bike where you're moving the legs, but you're not doing it in a way that would any way resemble a workout. So recovery running, recovery walking, recovery cross training. Those are three different ways that you can engage movement in order to recover. And where does that fit? It fits after every workout and after every long run. And I would submit that you should not do another long or hard effort after your previous one until you've had some sort of active recovery and active rest. As a coach, one of the primary ways that I see people get injured is when they skip that active recovery, that recovery running, recovery walking, recovery cross training between two hard efforts. You go from quality workout, speed workout to long run without active recovery in between, or you go from long run to speed workout without active recovery in between that's where I see people most often get injured because the body needs that active, easy movement in order to tee itself up for that next hard effort. So I do not recommend ever going from one hard thing to the next hard thing without some sort of active, easy movement in between. If you do that, that's a recipe for injury. So make sure that each hard effort is followed by a recovery run recovery walk, recovery cross training. The distance is going to largely depend on your total volume and what works for you. But I would submit that typically somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes is about the amount of time you need to invest in order to get the appropriate benefits from recovery. For some people that are newer to the sport, it might be a little bit less. For some people that are more experienced, it might be a little bit more. But that's a pretty good range that's going to cover Uh, cover for most people the time you need in order to promote the movement and blood flow that you need to get the healing that you need. So don't neglect that easy movement between hard efforts. That's recovery. Yes, you're running. Yes, you're moving in some way, but it's still recovery. And you need to treat it that way in terms of the effort and in terms of how you manage those runs. I would also submit that if you go too fast on those days, then you're actually wasting your time. You're not 
in a zone that would allow you for recovery for going too hard. So make sure it's easy. You let the body dictate the pace. You go glacially slow. And I think I talked about this on a previous episode. If you're struggling going slow enough, then I would encourage you to set some standards for yourself. Try to run your easiest recovery run ever. Work on going slow. Because if you can work on going slow and become efficient at going slow, not only will it put you in position to recover properly, but it'll also ultimately make you more efficient when you go to faster paces. Of course, sometimes I'll hear from people that they can't go that slow. And truthfully, you can. If I can do it, sometimes my recovery runs are three minutes per mile slower than my marathon pace or more. So if I can do it, you can do it. But it takes practice. You have to work on it. So you have to commit to it. So set a benchmark for yourself. Try to do your recovery run covering a certain distance at a pace that's slower than you've ever run before. Practice that. Set your threshold for success on that recovery run just like that. And if you can do it and you can practice it, if you can get better at it, if you can get better at slowing down, it's only going to make you better in recovery. So embrace it. Embrace going slow. Embrace going easy because that's what you need in order to balance the hard work. And I think you'll find that if you commit to that, then you'll not only feel better overall, but you'll also be able to invest more energy into the times when you go fast so that you'll get more out of your workouts and long runs as well. But you have to commit to that easy movement. So that's number one, movement. Number two, sleep. Number two, sleep. Your body rebuilds itself when you sleep. So you have to get that in. And I know for many of us, that's challenging for a lot of reasons because we all have busy lives. I am personally someone who struggles in the sleep department because I have to run early in the morning to get it in, but I'm a night owl. So my body's naturally awake and oftentimes I don't go to bed until 10, 30, 11 o'clock and I'm up at 4.30 to 4.45 to go for my run. And so I am a sleep challenge, sleep challenge individual. So I completely get it. It can be hard to sometimes prioritize sleep, but I would submit that unless you commit to adding time to your sleep equation, then you're going to struggle with under recovery. I can tell you that at times this year, I've personally struggled with that in certain windows where I've not been able to get enough sleep for various reasons. One being because we have a new puppy in our house and she has been getting us up sometimes in the middle of night, in the middle of the night, it's getting a little bit better now as she hits about eight months old, but that's been a struggle. And so I've had to make some trade-offs on my running during those windows where my sleep hasn't been as good. So you want to prioritize sleep. And for me, the best way that I do that outside of sleeping at night, because sometimes my nights are shorter than I'd like them to be, I prioritize napping. I think oftentimes we think of napping as something that lazy people do. And I can tell you that as someone who has grown up in a family that's always been pushing to do and do and do and idle hands in my household growing up were not necessarily something that you would want to see or that was that was supported so to speak and as someone who has during my professional career been in high-paced consulting environments where 
you're supposed to be pushing and doing all the time. I struggle with the mentality around napping because it feels when I do it, or at least my head, the the devil on my shoulder says that I'm lazy when I'm doing that, that it's not productive time. But the truth is, sleep is active rest. You actually have to go do it. You have to set up the circumstances for you to go do it. And I have now embraced the power of the nap. So I might take a window during the middle of my day to nap. I definitely try to find times on weekends when I can to nap, when my family and kids and schedule allows. But I am squeezing in naps every chance I get because that helps me supplement my overall sleep at night. And because that's suboptimal, the napping can help make up for that. It's not necessarily perfect or one for one, but it is better than not doing it. So I highly encourage you embrace the nap and then create the best circumstances you can for sleeping at night, which include things like making sure your room is dark, making sure the temperature is cool in your room, making sure that you turn off your screens at least an hour before bedtime so that you don't have that blue light exposure, which can cause you to have trouble falling to sleep that you don't eat too close to your bedtime because that can cause issues with falling asleep and that you create a sanctuary in your bedroom that is committed and focused on sleep so that you have no other distractions. These are hard things to do, some of them, at least to have the discipline to do, but they're relatively simple to pull off in terms of eliminating the light, getting a cool temperature in your room, but easier said than done, actually pulling it off. And I know we all have our challenges with it. My best advice for you is do the things you can. Don't beat yourself up over the things that you can't control and do your best to supplement with additional sleep in other areas to the extent that you can if you struggle with sleep at night. For me, that has meant setting some goals around napping, to be honest where I try to get at least two naps a week outside of my overnight sleep time. Typically, I get one of those during the week and I'll get one of those on the weekend. And that's a couple of hours sometimes of sleep that helps to add to my overall total. But it becomes a part of the goal setting that I have around recovery. And you'll have to find the thing around sleep for you that's going to help you amp that up a little bit. But it's just simply true. If you're not prioritizing sleep, then you're not prioritizing recovery in the most optimal way. Now I want to quickly comment on the Whoop and the Aura Rings and things like that that help measure your sleep at night. Even Garmin's, Garmin's newer watches will do that for you, helping you measure your sleep cycles. What I would say is that generally right now, the science around measuring sleep cycles at night using a wearable isn't that great or that precise. What is good is looking at your resting heart rate as well as your HRV overnight or when you get up in the morning. So if you're not wearing a wearable, you can look at those things via an app on your phone. There's the HRV4 app, for example, where you can do a morning measurement that can give you a picture of your sleep. So I find that the recovery algorithms built into those tools, whether it be Whoop or Aura, are a little bit limited. So if you're going to 
measure yourself on this dimension to understand recovery, then I encourage you to use the baseline data, resting heart rate, overnight, HRV, overnight, or first thing when you wake up, if you measure it using the HRV4 app, then that is a way for you to, to determine, to best determine, did you have a good night's sleep overnight? Was it sufficient to help aid in your recovery? And you can look at your baselines and your trend lines to understand how you're doing. For example, for me, my resting heart rate when in a solid training mode will typically be somewhere in the upper 40s overnight. Sometimes it'll dip down into the mid 40s. Doesn't go lower than that for me when I wake up. Oftentimes it'll be right in there, upper 40s, low 50s. If I see something that's north of that, 55 for example, about five beats, then that is typically a sign for me that something's going on. Either my sleep was suboptimal or there's another underlying cause and that can cause me to make some different decisions potentially about my training. I can also look at my HRV stats and when HRV is low, then you also might have an indicator that something's not quite right. So we want to, if you're measuring those things Use them as tools to gauge your progress on this dimension, but make sure that you're looking at the trends, not necessarily the very individual data points, and that you understand your baselines before you read too much into that data. But the message here is the same. You have to prioritize sleep. It is, outside of movement, your second most important recovery tool, and it's free. All right, before we get to number three, I want to talk about my partnership with Athletic Greens. I've been working with them, as I said, for several months now. That process really came for a couple of reasons. One, because I started taking a multivitamin at the end of last year because I had some issues going into the fall Boston last October where I was short on some key micronutrients, zinc, selenium, copper, for example, and that was causing me to feel run down and feel like I didn't have my normal pop, especially when it came to performing. So I started taking a multivitamin in consultation with my nutritionist at that time. Later, had a chance meeting with the chief revenue officer of Athletic Greens, who lives happens to live here in Austin, and he talked to me about their product. Fast forward another six months or so, and I started working with them as a partner on the show and now taking Athletic Greens essentially as my multivitamin, but it is a multivitamin on steroids because it has a superfood complex, it has pro and prebiotics, it has adaptogens, which aid help aid in recovery, and so it's got those things I need from a multivitamin standpoint with also other things that help me stay healthy and feel good. I take it every morning after my workout, typically before I eat breakfast. It's another way to kickstart my day as a part of my morning routine. Take a scoop of it, put it in my bottle, add water, shake it up, drink it slowly. It's got a neutral kind of tropical taste, so it tastes good. And then I eat breakfast right after that and I'm off to the races. It's made with high quality ingredients that your body can actually absorb. Costs you less than $3 a day, so less than a cup of coffee. And it's a small thing you can do every day with big benefits. 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash running rogue. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash running rogue to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So go check it out. Speaking of recovery and of nutrition and recovery, we're going to talk about number three on my list here. We've talked about movement. We talked about sleep. The last thing is fueling, fueling food, making sure that your body has the food that it needs to perform as well. This one is absolutely critical, and I'm not going to be talking necessarily about daily life nutrition. That can be an important part of the equation, but more than anything, I'm going to be talking about nutritional timing, nutritional timing. I think one of the underappreciated opportunities for fueling is post-hard effort, post-workout and post-long run. And I talked several episodes ago about carbo-loading, and what I would like to submit is that carbo-loading before the workout isn't necessarily something I recommend, as I talked about on that episode, but rather carbo-loading after the workout that's actually where you get the most bang for your buck for recovery fueling. So what I would encourage you to do is really think about your post-workout, post-long run fueling, making sure that within an hour of exercise, say maybe an hour to an hour and a half, it doesn't have to be perfect, that you get a filling well-balanced, meaning it has carbs, proteins, and fats meal into your body within that recovery window. This is the time when your body is most looking for those things as the building blocks of recovery. It's also the time when your body is most prepared to absorb those things so that it can refuel and restock the body's resources for not only recovery, but also so that you have glycogen in your body for that next hard effort. So if you're gonna carb reload, then actually the best time to do that is after a hard effort because again, your body's actually ready to absorb and it will absorb more, meaning you can refill your tank better in that immediate window post a hard effort than you can really at any other time. So if you're going to carb load, carb load after a hard effort or after a long run so that your body is then ready for the next time you have to go work hard. So Make sure you're managing those critical refueling windows well. And this is something that I commonly see people making mistakes around because they're doing a workout perhaps in the morning or a long run in the morning and then they're rushing to go do their day instead of taking time to properly refuel. So make sure you don't rush to the next. And hey, if you do have to rush, no worries, but make sure you have the ability to somewhere in that window, an hour to an hour and a half post hard effort, make sure you have that time to get that filling, refueling oriented meal. Some people will say that you want to get four to one ratio of carbs to protein. That's optimal according to some of the science. Personally, I'm less concerned about doing that exact math because it can be complicated and rather just making sure that you're eating a solid amount of carbs that also includes proteins and fats in your meal so that you can get all the building blocks you need for recovery. If you're not doing that, if you're not prioritizing refueling, especially post hard effort or long run, 
then you're under optimizing recovery. So please prioritize fueling as well. Fueling at other times certainly matters too. You don't want to under fuel at any time, but we're highlighting these critical windows because that's where it matters the most. So make sure in particular that you're getting plenty of food and a balanced meal after those hard efforts. There was actually a sweat science article this week from Alex, Alex Hutchinson that talked about the importance of this refueling, especially with carbs for recovery purposes so that you can restock those glycogen stores and then be ready for that hard, next hard effort. I'll link to that article in the show notes. So refueling critical point here. Think about carb loading, not before your hard runs and workouts, but actually after. That's where it matters the most so that you can restock your glycogen stores so that you can also have the fuel and the building blocks you need to kickstart recovery for those working muscles. So number three, refueling properly. So again, movement, sleep, refueling. It's as simple as that. And until you're truly invested in those three variables, then the other things don't matter at all. And the other things don't matter at all because those are the core elements of recovery. If you're not doing those things well, then you're, you're sub-optimizing no matter what. So that's my main message. Now, I want to talk about eight things that you can do to help you kickstart recovery. Some of these are included in the concepts I just talked about. Some of these are adding to the concepts I just talked about. But more than anything, what I want to remind you of, in addition to those three fundamental elements of recovery, movement, sleep, and fueling, I want to remind you that we're also trying to get the body into a parasympathetic state with our nervous system. Our nervous system essentially has two parts at the simplest levels. There's the sympathetic state and then there's the parasympathetic state. The sympathetic state is the fight or fight state. That's what we get into when we're running hard, when we're working hard. The parasympathetic state, that's the state we get into when we're appropriately recovering. And so you want to make sure that after you do the hard thing, the sympathetic thing, the flight or, th- flight or fight thing, then you're appropriately switching that system off into the parasympathetic state so that you can then engage your body in recovery. And part of doing that is actually mental. It's doing things that calm your mind, that shut down that flight or fight mentality so that your body then naturally shifts. And so, yes, we can do the fundamental things of movement and sleep and fueling in order to kickstart recovery, but we also have to be doing things that mentally get us into a place where the body goes into a parasympathetic state. And some of those can involve the the things that I just mentioned, but there could be other tasks as well. So I'm going to give you a list of eight things that you can do to engage that parasympathetic state. There may also be other ancillary recovery benefits as well, but a big part of what we're talking about now is switching the mind to a calm place so that it can be in sync with your body in recovery. So what are those eight things? Number one, 
put down the phone and spend 20 quiet solo minutes in meditation. Put down the phone and spend 20 quiet solo minutes in meditation. And when I say meditation, I know that sometimes that can be a scary word because people might say, well, I can't meditate. I'm not very good at it. And what I'm talking about here isn't necessarily anything specific around meditation. All I'm talking about is turning off your phone, closing your eyes in a quiet space, and simply being. You can focus on your breathing, but let your thoughts wander wherever they may. Don't try to necessarily guide them in any way. Just sit there, be quiet in your in your space on your own, and make sure the make sure those distractions are turned off so that you can get to that calming mental space. When I do this and I struggle with my thoughts running rampant, then what I'll do is simply focus on my breathing, sometimes counting my breaths in, out, sometimes just simply trying to focus on deep breathing. That will get me to a calm place. But what we're essentially trying to do is just calm the mind. It doesn't have to necessarily have to mean that you think about certain things or that you go through a specific structured meditation, but it's simply turning off that device, closing your eyes, getting to a quiet, quiet space, and just being present for a moment. That is as simple as a meditation as it can be. If you want to use a head, the Headspace app or some sort of structured meditation, that can work as well. But this is a very simple way to simply calm the mind and get the body to calm down as well. So put the phone down, spend 20 quiet solo minutes in meditation. That's number one. Number two, get a massage or spend some extra time doing self-massage with your foam roller. Again, this can be sort of a meditative space as well. There's some evidence to suggest that massage can be helpful for recovery, but that evidence is not definitive at the moment. But more than that, what I think massage can do is it can put you in a quiet space without your device where you're getting the therapeutic benefits of simple human touch, which releases oxytocin into your system and helps get you to a calm parasympathetic state. So regardless of the specific science around the benefits of massaging your muscles, I still believe that this is an important way to engage a calm mind and a calm body is to get a massage or spend some time foam rolling because when you're doing that, you're going to be focused on how your body feels versus being distracted by something else. So that's number two get a massage or spend some extra time on the foam roller, particularly perhaps focusing on those trouble spots for you. Number three, I've already talked a little bit about this, but it's an absolutely critical recovery step. Take a nap, ideally without setting alarm, sleep as you can and get up when your body wakes you up naturally. I like to do this on a Saturday afternoon if I have the time and space. Sometimes I'll do it actually mid-morning on a work week after a hard workout where I'll give myself that space. I know not everybody can do that during a work day, but those are a couple of spots that I can find time for that. But make time. Lay down. Try to sleep. You may not go to sleep right away. That's okay because even if you're simply laying down 
with a calm mind and without distractions, that still has its benefits even if you don't go to sleep. But no matter what, try to spend that time taking a nap and ideally without setting alarm, which can sometimes wake you up in a sleep cycle that's, that's less than optimal versus waking up on your own. That's number three. Number four, go for a casual walk with a partner, spouse, friend, fur baby, dog, whatever it may be. Easy motion equals lotion for the muscles. Also, that conversation that you would have with that person that you love or that thing being with that thing you love, if it's a dog or a pet, is community, which can help engage the parasympathetic system. And I would say it's a bonus if you're somehow immersed in nature. So go for a walk in a park, in a green belt, go for a hike somewhere if you have access to that, because nature also has a calming effect. So go for a casual walk with someone you love or something you love. You'll get that easy motion, which is lotion for the muscles, but you also get to a calming state, which will help engage that parasympathetic system. So that's number four going for a casual walk with someone you care about. Number five, take your recovery run easier than you ever have. I already talked about this one, but I wanted to reiterate it and repeat it. Do it glacially slow. I want you to seriously try to set a record for your easiest ever recovery run. Work on that. Practice that. It will not only make sure that you're getting the right ease with your recovery work, but it'll also ultimately, if you're efficient, if you learn to be efficient at those slower efforts or easier efforts, then it will translate to you being more efficient at faster efforts. So practice that. Set a metric. Try to beat that metric. You know, maybe it's, I want to run three miles in 36 minutes, or I want to run three miles in 39 minutes, whatever it may be set a target that is slower than you've ever run and try to do it. Try to hit it. Because if you can practice that and become good at that, then I promise you it'll translate not only in recovery, but also in to more efficient, faster running. That's number five. Number six, make a homemade balanced meal of whatever you might be craving and make sure it includes dessert. Make a homemade balanced meal of whatever you're craving and make sure it includes dessert. There's a high correlation between people cooking at home and ultimately healthy eating habits. So this will serve to not only get good unprocessed food in your body that will help you refuel, but it'll also serve to be a calming activity. Ideally do this with others so that it can be a community activity as well. Follow a recipe that you like, have fun with it. Use this easy process to engage that parasympathetic system. That's number six. Number seven, watch something that will make you laugh like you haven't in a while. Watch a comedy special. Watch a rom-com. Watch something that's going to make you laugh. I think sometimes we forget about the calming, the recovery powers of laughter. It's a way to engage the parasympathetic system. It's actually something that I invested in when I took my sabbatical a couple of years ago was doing things that made me laugh, watching things that made me laugh. I really went down rabbit holes with different comedians, 
to engage this. And it was a whole lot of fun. It also reminded me how fun and lighthearted life can be if you're not doom scrolling all the time. So watch something that will make you laugh like you haven't in a while. That's another way to engage the parasympathetic system. That's number seven. Number eight, read a book for pleasure. Read a book for pleasure. I think sometimes we forget that reading can be fun as adults or that we don't have time for it. But find a book that is lighthearted, that will engage your mind, but not in a way that's too serious, that'll be a fun read, that'll be a quick read. Dig into something like that and then read it. Right before you go to bed is a great time because that'll help you get into a a mindset that will help put you to sleep. But you really do it anytime. So find something fun to read for pleasure. That's another way to help engage that parasympathetic system. So that's number eight, read a book for pleasure. Eight things, and I would submit that you don't have to do all of them, but pick a couple of them over the next couple of weeks and just do them. And then periodically invest in these things. Just remember that there are other ways to engage the parasympathetic parasympathetic system to recover than spending money on cryo or some recovery modality that is whiz-bang or that is the hot thing. This list is a very simple way. Most of these things won't cost you anything, but will help you engage that recovery mentality, that recovery mindset. And hopefully enjoy your life a little bit more and have some fun doing it. So there you go. We'll wrap it with those eight things. Remember, the fundamentals of recovery, movement, sleep, refueling, and then making sure that you're taking time to mentally engage the parasympathetic system through those activities that I mentioned. We will wrap this episode on recovery here. As always, thanks for listening. You can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.